0: All right. Welcome to episode five today of the TurfCast podcast. Ryan is back with me and we're going to talk about today some nutrient stuff for fall. We're going to talk about maybe some overseeding of warm season grass. I've got a few things going on in my renovation project that while I have the sports turf king here, I will ask him some questions about that. So how are you doing today? Don't Ryan? Let,
1: I'm doing good. My advice would be don't let it die. How about that?
0: Well, like, yeah that that would be good.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we would like it to be successful, but Mother Nature isn't uh, hasn't been very kind to of you out in Iowa. Is everybody okay after that uh, most recent round of storms and everything that you guys had out there?
0: Yeah, so I need to. I've actually been meaning to do that. and kind of go out north of here just a little ways and kind of see some of that damage because it was it was slightly north of here. Uh, we got sort of the little brunt of the bottom of that storm, but the, the top part there, I mean, over 110 mile per hour winds was, uh, that's not, not very hard to ruin a bunch of stuff out in that area because it's, you know, a lot of farm fields, a lot of open area where that wind gets going anyway. So
1: yeah, nothing to really stop it, slow it down or anything like that. So yeah, no, that's tough. And it's tough seeing that. I know on the pro side, um, I saw a lot of golf course superintendents from up around Cedar Rapids and that area that were posting pictures of, you know, the, the aftermath. And I mean, it, it literally looked like a hurricane to come through yeah. and, and, you know, straight line winds are a little bit different and everything like that. But my goodness, it was, uh, it's tough to see that. And, uh, hopefully everybody's okay. I mean, grass can always grow back. Trees can be replanted, all those things, but, you know, I guess on a, On a happy note, you know you've got. uh, I don't know what it feels like out there, but it's uh, very. It's almost crisp here this morning. I think we have a low of fifty two coming tomorrow morning. So yeah, last night. uh,
0: Stoked. Last night it was about. I think it was about fifty five because I was grilling last night about nine o'clock and it started to have that sort of fall where you're getting the cool evening feel to it, but. Yeah, a couple of people asked me after the storms went through about they're like, Well, your renovation must have washed away or and actually when I went over there it was just like it looked exactly like the fields. Like all the grass was completely laying flat that was there, like the wind. But it was fine. It didn't you know, it's not it's not tall like corn is. So
1: Exactly. So yeah, nothing nothing to worry about there. So Yeah. So what's going on with it? What is the what is the is it good, bad? We have any well, news since then?
0: So I got the ryegrass going pretty well. Some of it is already leafing out probably four, three or four like leaves on each plant. And some of the bluegrass is actually getting a couple leaves on each plant at this point hmm. too, even though it's not very tall yet. But of course, the bluegrass is just sitting there, not really wanting to do anything. It just kind of hangs out for a while. But last Friday, let's see, that would have been maybe day 10 or somewhere around there it's been continuously hot here and it's been difficult to manage the moisture of keeping things going without it getting too wet and then getting to the evening time where it's still really humid and all that going on. So we started to see some damping off, uh, last, yeah, it would have been like last Thursday, Friday. So I got some mefenoxam on it that evening and then we got that watered in, I think the next morning and, so everything after that looked good like it was two or three days straight up until just this morning my neighbor texted me and he was like oh we're I'm seeing that fungus again like all over the place. Oh gosh. And I was like okay well now I'm now I'm a little bit unsure of what would be going on there because it was working really well but then it also did get cooler last night and kind of down into that you know cool damp type air
1: yeah definitely that's that's definitely below well the threshold if you were fifty five um so I think yeah how it responds this week will be will be crucial. So how many days after the methanoxin did he say he saw it again?
0: Or well, it again? so it would have been last Friday that it was sprayed, and then just yeah. today it was like it was good all this whole weekend, didn't see anything on it, and we were like, and the conditions haven't changed all that much other than it's cooler right now but actually I thought over the weekend it was pretty hot like it was 72 at night and oh man yeah
1: I doubt you'd see it I mean I did you go over and eyeball it or or uh I haven't been over there today
0: but it Mm -hmm. was um yeah I mean it was definitely he showed me the pictures and it was definitely what was going on and it just wiped out some of that stuff last week like you know in a day's time, it just is done, done for. So, uh, I just hmm. don't know. I don't, I don't really understand that one cause it was working well for a few days and then now it doesn't seem to be working.
1: Maybe be some of those, um, some of those other waterborne funners, fungi that, uh, are taking over there. Maybe a little bit of, um, powdery mildew, yellow tuft, stuff like that is kind of weird in cooler times when things come back, but when we see the mycelium like that, um, right. It's a little bit different. So I don't know. The only other thing I was thinking is just if you're seeing maybe spider mite webs, you know, a lot of times when weather cools off like that, you'll see those out there and people kind of freak out and think, oh gosh, I've got dollar spot or I've got some type of, um, some type of fungus that's producing, um, spores via mycelium and and people freak out. And, Generally speaking, a lot of times the easiest way to tell is if you rub it and your fingers and it rolls up, kind of like um, that's how you can tell it's a spider web. Usually, my ceiling just kind of just disintegrates in your fingers in between. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see how you go forward here with the weather because let you me pull your weather up here and just see. But
0: you're it's supposed to be of- a little cooler for a couple of days and then it's supposed to get back to the upper eighties and the humid weather, I think coming up towards the end of the week, but gosh, yeah. 88,
1: 89. Yeah. Sunday, Monday. Yeah. So yeah, but the nighttime lows, that's the, that's the biggest thing. I mean, I, I don't worry so much about it being warm, even especially during renovation during the day, it's Mm -hmm. more of those nighttime temps. And so, yeah, your 65 is your highest nighttime temp forecasted here for the next seven days. So hopefully uh, catch a break but yeah yeah. if you get methanoxone out there that that should keep it at bay but um yeah this is the this is the time right this is the wild ride of will it or won't it and if it doesn't what will i do and
0: exactly (laughs) that that was what i was thinking today i was like well okay so if that didn't really work and then we lose a bunch of it at this point like it's so early enough but it's you gonna have to come up with a plan at that point and try to f- figure out what that plan is very quickly
1: well and that's like project planning right you know because people are always like wow well, why are you going so early well like we talked about previously you got you got a little bit of a, a window there to kind of do over fix stuff whatever the case might be and you can kind of have a contingency plan in your back pocket of okay if we lose part of it, you know, if we're on a slope and something washes out, or if we, um, have 110 mile an hour straight line winds that, you know, push stuff out of the way and we've got pythium coming in after that, uh, all those things can be covered in that type of plan, but you've got the the time and the weather to work with versus, you know, if you're a month from now having that happen, you know, where you're, you're probably not going to get pythium, but it could be something else at that point that holds you back. It's like, well, I've only got like four or five more weeks maybe of decent growing weather and then it's over so yeah. that's that's the tough part. Yeah. That's the tough part so.
0: Yeah, and the thing that we've been struggling with with those temperatures, the upper temperatures like you said, I told my neighbor the same thing. I was like during the day I'm not worried about we're just we have to keep it alive during that heat, but I'm not worried about the actual fungus part or anything like that. It's getting it dried out enough towards the end of the day to not be sitting all night, like really soaked. So we've really cut back on like the evening time to kind of let it ride through all that Mm -hmm. stuff. And it seemed to be working better, but yeah, now, now it's just like, well, I need to go out there. Um, maybe, you know, I don't get up early, Ryan. So this ain't going to happen to me getting out there at (laughs) 6am.
1: Why not, man? I mean, that's the time to get it done, right? (laughs) You got to see it while the dew's still on the ground. You're up. Oh, the dude's been burned off for a couple hours by the time you're up. Well, that's I might as well
0: day. just go out there like last night. I went to bed at four. So I might as well just go out there with a flashlight at that time.
1: Use that. There you go. Yeah. That's uh yeah. End of third shift, beginning of first shift. That's that's your wheelhouse right there. So yeah. um so the other, the,
0: the other part of it real quickly is yeah. crabgrass. So that's the other difficult thing that I'm dealing with in there because we brought in the new soil, and you know, you're know you always going to have some weeds come in with that new soil usually, especially during this time frame of it being so hot and it being constantly in that sort of giving those weeds exactly what they want, like doses of water and hot weather and all of that. So um, I think I sent you a picture yesterday, but I don't know if you saw it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not like it's crazy taking over, but it's fairly widespread, to where I'm like, well, what should I kind of think about for a plan for that at this point?
1: What was the tenacity rate that you went out with at Stevie?
0: Um, I'm trying to think now. Just the rate, I think it was, what is the the low rate on there? Um, the lowest rate would
1: be like 3.2 fluid ounces.
0: The I acre, think I did five. Five. Five is, yeah,
1: five is a pretty common uh, rate or a seeding, something like that. But I'll tell you, it it has a really tough time, I think, suppressing crabgrass. I saw um, a couple trials last year where they were doing uh, maybe a little bit sooner, like establishment trials with uh, Ohio State where they had, I think, like a five-ounce to the acre rate and an eight-ounce to the acre rate and a tremendous amount of crabgrass coming through on the five-ounce rate. So that was, I think they initiated that about like a month ago uh, in that time frame. So it would have been like a mid-July um, initiation of that little project. And by this time, so, you know, four weeks later last year, I think it was hammered with crabgrass. So I think the, the stated claims and the benefits and everything like that on the label for crab are maybe a little bit overdone. Uh, it's got its place and it definitely can help with other things at different times, but that's a lot to ask of it. Um, in that midsummer or even, you know, we're still considered midsummer, I guess at this point, but um, it's going to be a tough road to host. So going forward. Yeah. I, I mean, what are your thoughts? What do you think you're going to do?
0: Well, I was just considering uh, I've been picking as much as I, as I can by hand. And I did that too on some of the other small areas when I was renovating my own yard, you know, I, It wasn't crazy at that point, so I was just like, okay, as soon as I see them, I'll try to to pick as many as I can, but there's larger areas here that I don't really want to walk out on too much, so that's been more difficult. But they're tillering enough already to this point that some of them have a pretty good root system on there, so also that sort of soil, you pull that thing out, and it's pulling out grass with it and a big chunk of soil with it too. So
1: Yeah, it's going to be tough. I mean, I think... Uh, going out there again. So your follow-up Tenacity app, were you planning on making a second one
0: anyhow? Yeah, I was thinking I was going to.
1: Yeah. So I think throwing in the Quinclorac with that, you know, so you have those dual modes of action. So if you look at that um, Quinclorac label, like the newer liquid formulation, it's actually got a really cool chart. I think we talked about this on the previous one, but, you know, there was all those questions about crabgrass control Mm -hmm. And I went and looked at it, so I knew. And uh, for, I think, tall fescue, you're, you're good up through um, anything past 14 days. But blue and rye, you've got to go out to that 28 day mark before uh, they consider it to be seed safe after immersion. So you've probably got another two weeks there. You know, you I guess the, the do you or don't you is do you tank mix those two and wait? and let that get another, you know, even more foothold, or do you bite the bullet and split those apps up? And I don't know. That's a tough one because you're going to, you're, you're going to stop in its tracks, hopefully um, additional stuff from emerging. If you go out sooner with your tenacity and then wait those additional two weeks uh, with the drive with the Conclorac, but I don't know. That's a tough one. I would, you know, given the weather that you've got coming you know, just looking at that forecast, I would be, I would probably go ahead and make your tenacity app because the other thing is too, you still got one on the barn, right? You still have a 16 ounce to the acre label limit for the year. So you could throw um, another app out in two or three weeks with the queen Clorac in it and um, have a pretty good shot. And making it all work
0: okay so so you could probably get that tenacity going again on it like we're at mm, 16 days today so i could probably go ahead and and go for that soon then
1: yeah i would go for I and mean, you can pull the trigger on that if you did so it was two weeks from seeding and you sprayed the day you seeded correct with tenacity yeah. yep yeah so i think anytime here in the next um three to seven days go ahead and, and, and pull the trigger on that and then be ready to follow up you're in another two or three weeks with um, your drive and quinclorac, And again, some people are going to be like, oh, you know, just let the frost take care of the crabgrass. Not, not in a new renovation like that. You want to give your seedlings every opportunity to compete and win. Uh, so we control, even if the fall seeding is a must. Yeah. You absolutely have to do that. So,
0: Well, and I was just telling my neighbor this story. I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if I've told you this story or not, but when I was originally getting, like, we had just moved into our house and it was the next spring after and I knew I needed to redo the backyard and so I wanted to start there and it needed regrading and stuff. So this company came over and they did some of the grading and it got to be, I mean, you know how things go with projects where you're waiting on someone else and it got to be late May. And I think they finished it. And then I was like, I didn't know anything at that point other than I like to mow yards and I want a nice lawn. So I told them, I was like, isn't this a bit late to be seeding? Like it doesn't, it seems like we're just going into the hottest part of the year. I mean, I'm no expert, but they're like, no, 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 it's fine. So they put down the seed at like June 1st. And then I started watering it like crazy. And of course By probably July, I had a field of crabgrass and foxtail because we had also disturbed the soil. So it was like, it was terrible. And they didn't use any sort of tenacity or anything at that point. And so it kind of went on like that. And everybody at the beginning thought, oh, you've got this nice yard coming in. Like it's looking pretty good. It's getting full. I'm like, no, those are weeds. So
1: I'm telling you, I have seen some horrendous ass work in, (laughs) in my, in my time of doing this. Now that said, and I felt bad. So there's a, a, a home around the block for me that, you know, whenever we take the kids and the dog or whatever for a walk, we go past it every time. And so home got bought by uh, a couple. That's uh, they got a couple of kids and everything like that. And they, the yard needed work, the landscape, everything. So they tore the whole thing apart. It was the same thing. I think they started tearing it apart in like April and then like nobody showed up. So I don't know if like that contractor went away, flew by night, you know, went to jail, whatever. (laughs) And somebody new shows up and it was, I mean, I'm telling you what Ryan, it's like the exact same story. So it's like Memorial day and they come out and like, it's like four guys full force did a really good job on like some hardscape stuff, yada, yada, yada. So they tear the whole yard up. And they received the whole yard. And I actually was walking by one day and I never identify myself as a lawn person to anybody in the neighborhood. Like that's just, that's just asking for it. Yeah. So I, I go past and I hear the, the woman who owns the home talking to the contractor and in the same conversation you had, Oh, I I really want a nice lawn. And I took everything I had, Ryan and not jump in and be like, don't do this. (laughs) Don't. But sure as hell, they do this, and I am telling you what, it was the healthiest, densest crop of crabgrass, goosegrass, foxtail, and a little bit of annual rye that popped up out of this, you know, dog crap contractors mix that they used. I mean, it was, I think I still have pictures. I kind of took pictures each week because I was like, man, this is going to be a slow motion train wreck that I get to watch in real time. to oh, yeah. be Awesome. So yeah, so still to this day, um, every, you know, it's like clockwork, you know, the first frost hits and that whole lawn just, you know, completely craps out and it's done for the year. So I've been there many,
0: many times where I've seen the, like someone in my neighborhood or something doing something like that. And I'm like right across the street every day, like working on this yard that I have and everyone knows it's like, this does not look like anything else or for the most part, really anything they'll see they've ever seen in a home yard whatsoever. But they won't ask me any questions. Like they'll just stand there and be like, I hear them talking the same thing. Like, well, I wonder what I should do about this. Meanwhile, I'm like 50 feet away in you know in my yard. I'm like, you could ask me a question. I'm just a normal guy, but okay. You are
1: very intimidating, Ryan. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean imposing physically and yeah everything about you says don't talk to me. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't get that either. It's, it's like that double-edged sword, you know, and I, I enjoy coming on here and talking with you because, you know, there's the people that are here are like genuinely want help. And then it like out in the, in the, in the real world, so to speak, it seems like there are, that's a much smaller group of people that you interact with on a day to day basis. So there's people that are too stubborn, hard headed, or whatever they think they can do it their own way and don't want to ask for help or they think they're imposing on you or the people that just figure out what the, that's what you do for a living and they crawl up, you know, as close and uh, as deep as they can to get as much information. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. So, you know, you know that's I, just, what,
0: I just thought of a video idea, but I don't know that I could ever pull it off, but I was thinking what would be really fun would be go to like Home Depot Lowe's or something and stand in the lawn, like aisle and record actually like what's going on and then try to like help people at the same time because anytime I go to those stores I just stand there for a second because I usually go look at the lawn like whatever's there and I just hear people talking and it'll just be like I want to say like no don't do that no don't do like because there's no one there to help them but it would be kind of interesting and then the other thing weird for me that happens is that you know, sometimes people do recognize me at those stores. So that they'll be like, Oh, oh <laughs> Hey, are you yeah, like, yeah, that's, yeah. I I am that person, but
1: I am the guy. Yeah, I think Matt Martin told a story like that, that he, at one point, uh, you know, f- almost for like fun and for like trying to engage, you know, new business or whatever, that he would literally do that. Like he would go stand in the, you know, the Scott's Pennington, you know, uh, big box aisles and just, try to give advice and then turn that into a prospect and a sale and everything like that. So I just thought that was interesting of maybe that would be is like, uh, you can go to Scott's or somebody like that and do like a, like a quasi undercover boss kind of thing. Yeah. That's like, what I
0: was thinking. It would be like your undercover family. yard
1: boss. Yeah. Like there it is.
0: Yeah. Nice. That would oh, be kind of fun. It would,
1: we got to take this to the networks right now. So yeah. we'll just stop what we're doing. So, what was the, we talked, oh, you said uh, Bermuda grass overseeing, not necessarily a forte of, of either of ours, but what was the question that came up?
0: Okay, so this was a pretty extensive question. I think it may have actually been someone in the Discord group that we kind of hang out. Oh,
1: it was, uh, uh I think it was Danger Lawn. I yeah, think the I think guy. so. I can't remember, I don't know his real name, I'm sorry, but...
0: so. As you said, would love to see you talk about warm season strategies and overseeding, specifically about overseeding Bermuda with rye during the fall season, where Bermuda will go dormant. So yeah, again, this is not something that I personally have ever done myself, but you know I love the ryegrass, so I'll talk about that anytime.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you are the president of the uh, United States Ryegrass Foundation, Mm -hmm. for sure. So, founding member, I think, actually. Yeah. So... uh, Again, not at all my forte, um, only done it, uh, a few times here.
0: Would you um, want to quickly too talk about your Bermuda field that you kind of have been working on in that project? And
1: yeah, so that's where, you know, that's where my experience comes from. So there's a, a field, uh, a football field. Uh, they also play soccer and lacrosse on it. So it's, um, football and soccer in the fall and then lacrosse in the spring and, the way that it came about to be Bermuda was that uh, the the field failed. They had a cool season field on native soil and it just failed uh, a couple years ago. And so in going through the consulting work that we did, we figured out that football and fall sports was one of the heaviest use because they had multiple sports, obviously. And then just from a a community involvement standpoint, that's kind of where their, their bread and butter was, was football and to a, a somewhat lesser extent soccer and so the idea was, well, why would we subject a, a uh, bluegrass field, let's say, to all the harshness of summer and then say, hey, it's now, you know, August 30th. And as a field, I need you to be at your best for the next, you know, 12 or 13 weeks and get the you know crap kicked out of you. And that just didn't, didn't always jive with me. So the idea that putting a Bermuda field in where, okay, it's going to go through summer here in Ohio, which is no, not unlike what you have where it's, it's pretty warm. Uh, We've got three months of, of real true summer. And sometimes we get an extension of that depending on how the fall goes and everything. But so that ended up as Bermuda grass. And so it's been that way. This is their second season that they'll play on it and, uh, knock on wood, they're they're supposed to I think announce here today in Ohio that they'll be actually playing football here at the high school level, so mm-hmm. it'll get a chance to get used. But in in the overseeding process, you know, we talked about this initially with them, uh, with the with the school that did the field that, hey, this is going to go dormant at some point, probably during the season, and it's at least going to start going off color color during the season, so we need to consider whether we want to overseed or not, and you know, in a home lawn setting, it's, you know, it's purely aesthetic for both reasons. Like it doesn't really offer any benefit to playability, anything like that um, on a sports field side. And from a home lawn, obviously it's just cosmetic. You know, you're trying to cover up dormant Bermuda grass. So it's, uh, Ryan, it's honestly a lot like doing a, what we consider to be an overseeding uh, with cool season into cool season, except, you know, you've got, a warm season grass that is still actively growing or starting to slow down its growth and given that, that ryegrass an opportunity to do it. So, you know, the way that, that we did it here. And again, there's, uh, there are a number of different ways that, that folks do this all over the country. And by no means is what I'm saying, uh, the gospel in any sense, but literally just went out, um, slit seeded half of our rate, so we did. Um, a 12 pound per thousand rate, which is fairly light, especially for a sports field. But for a home lawn, I've seen folks go anywhere from like eight to like 30, like 30 pounds per thousand, mm-hmm. which is super high. Um, but in that sense, like, so we, we, we split seated at six pounds and then we spread six pounds uh, over the top, just with a bro- broadcast spreader. Uh, then, top dress over top of that and then to seal everything in and kind of work everything down into that canopy to make sure that the stuff that we spread over top just to kind of even things out. So we didn't have just slit cedar lines of grass was we took a piece of uh, synthetic turf and we flipped it over so that the the green grass part was down and then just use that as a drag. So almost like if you see those cocoa mat drags that people will will advertise or or, or push, um, it's a little bit more, um, not necessarily aggressive because it's the, the cocoa mats are, are a lot firmer uh, in the way that they drag across. But I feel like the, the length of the fibers on the turf actually allows it to knock stuff in a little bit better. So after that little starter for and water and try to keep people off of it, which is a challenge on a sports field and probably even sometimes on a home lawn. And you know, if you're actively using the space, mm-hmm. but keep it, you know, keep people off there for a couple of weeks and try to get some good germination and, you know, as well as anybody, how fast you can get ryegrass to come up and be mowing it and looking good. And I was even shocked. You know, we had, we did that here last year. It was uh, the Saturday before Labor Day. So we had like a little bit of a break built into that um, fall sports schedule on that field to where they had a game, I think Friday night. And then we seeded Saturday morning right after that. And then they had four or five day break and then they had soccer on it. So soccer's not quite as. Uh, impactful football, obviously with foot traffic and things like that. But so is that, they, uh, uh,
0: is that field native still native soil?
1: No, that's on a sand cap. Okay. So that's the other thing too, is, uh, you know, I think we probably had better success with it on the sand cap than we did, um, with, with, as we would have on new soil. So <laughs> it's like one of those trade-offs too. I think in a home lawn situation, if it was me and my lawn personally, uh, and I lived in a climate where you know this was an every every year occurrence. I'm not sure that I would overseed. I, I just don't know that it's worth the hassle of seeding it, having it look good during that winter stretch, and then the transition is usually really awful. Like it's hard, it's hard to get um, things transitioned out in the springtime to where you know that rye grass is starting to wane with the heat. You know that starts building up, and then. Typically in, in a little bit like cooler climates, not necessarily cool, but say like not in the desert where yeah. you can just cook the ryegrass, you can just cook the ryegrass out with the heat that's there. Having to spray that stuff out, it's harsh on the Bermuda. Uh, it looks like crap for several weeks where you, know, you have pockets where the, the ryegrass is a little bit stronger and things like that. So it's it, like I said, it's a really, really intrusive process on the front end and on the back end. You know, in the golf world where this was like really, really prevalent a lot um, in, you know, resort type courses or country clubs and things like that down south, it's it's kind of gone by the wayside. It's made a little bit of a comeback, but maybe 20 years ago, like everybody was doing it. And then about maybe eight or 10 years ago, a lot of people stopped doing it because it's also really expensive Rye you know, ryegrass isn't cheap. And so like on a football field at a 12 pound rate, that's like, uh, what? 1600 pounds or so of ryegrass it's a lot. Yeah. So Well, I can say
0: I can say for a fact I would definitely do it cuz I want to mow all the time. <laughs> so well, well, and see.
1: that's plus what?
0: Well, plus it's ryegrass so you know, I'm I always love planting ryegrass so that's kind of how it would work for me. But yes, that that's part of the rest of the questions here. And I don't want to get too far on to uh, <laughs> past the actual but this uh seedbed question here was uh, I've seen people go too aggressive with fall verticutting, and I've seen some people talk about scalping to the Bermuda like really tight and trying to get that seed going on that. So,
1: yeah, like on a, we didn't do any of that. We couldn't do any of that because of play, obviously. So, like in a golf course situation, they will do that. Like they'll they'll do some of some folks will do a uh, like a T NEX uh, Trinex Impact Ethyl app to shut down the, the Bermuda grass and then scalp it and try to give that rye every opportunity that it possibly can to get up and get going. So I, I think it just depends on what you're willing to accept that following spring because you are weakening everything that you do right there, you know, from the late scalp to planting ryegrass and then planning on transitioning out like that, those are all things that are really really harsh and detrimental and so it's just like this cycle right so like you you have these these two or three weeks in the fall and these two or three weeks in the spring where you're planting in the fall and transitioning out in the spring and then it's a rat race right and so it's trying to get the Bermuda grass to recover as quickly in the summer as it can so it can build a root system get healthy and then just as it starts to wane again, you start the whole thing over. Well, so it's,
0: and as we know, like you were talking about the the ryegrasses, especially the newer varieties, have gotten a lot better at surviving a lot of this heat. Because, I mean, same thing with my yard. It's been nearly ninety this summer, almost every day, June, July, and you know, if you were just going to let that sit and try to let the heat burn it off, it was not going to work. So.
1: Yeah. So there uh, I actually saw a picture and I can't remember where it was somewhere in the Southwest where they had overseed a rye and I think it was hanging on. It was like June. Now they had a cool spring, uh, out there in the Southwest, but you know, basically them saying like this never happens like this is almost impossible, but here it is a rye grass that's, you know, standing up to the heat and still hanging on without us spraying it out. So it is interesting. And I think that's where you're seeing some of these seed companies now develop, um, I know Mountain View has has some that are coming out, and I think Seed Research of Oregon does as well. Where they're more transitional rye. so they're meant to look good, and they're a lot easier to to spray out and kill off yeah. at the end of that cycle. So um, Baron, excuse me, Baron Bruggs got another one. It's called like SOS. That is sort of their winter overseed um, mix. It's it, it's a I can't remember if it's a mixture what's in there. I think there's Italian rye in there. And then there's actually like an improved annual rye in there too, I believe. But in any sense, like the whole idea is is you can germinate it at low temperatures, it's super dark, um, you know, and that's the idea is that you have something that looks good for a few months. And then when you go make it go away, it's gone. Yeah. So
0: what would but, be, uh, or what have you seen as far as, on that field, recovery with the Bermuda as it's starting to get uh, you know, once football's really actually just kind of getting rolling is when it's still probably pretty hot, but you're you're starting to get the sunlight not as intense and all that stuff. So how does how has that gone?
1: It's pretty good. I mean, from the standpoint that you do have wear in the in the wear area. So like, you know, goal boxes and things like that uh, for soccer and then down the hash is obviously in football, but at no point last year, you know, there were, they had, um, 32 games between soccer and football out there. Uh, and then they did some additional practices after all the games were over, uh, going into the post season and stuff, but it never at any point was there a spot where I was like, man, this is just gone. There's nothing left. And I don't know what we're going to do. Uh, so there was always that, that, uh, recuperative potential there that was enough to keep it um, to keep it moving keep it rolling but the biggest thing uh, that that i was impressed with was at least from a sports application like the stuff just doesn't divot it will give with your foot but it will not divot to the point where uh, you see you know if you're watching you know an nfl game and you see chunks of turf and things like that that are coming up that never happened like we never saw anything that um uh, that large and that substantial. I think that was a, that was a big testament to what Bermuda can provide in terms of a, a solid um, footing for an athlete if you're playing on him that mm-hmm.
0: way. So I don't know which variety they had um, that they're using down at the Tampa Bay Buck stadium, but I went to a bowl game there on new year's last year and that field was in like pretty bad shape. You were seeing that where it was just like big areas were coming up and people were falling all over the place and,
1: so that's four nineteen Bermuda. That's that's the, the tried and true, like the the bread and butter variety of um, hybrid Bermuda grasses is Tifway four nineteen, and they use that extensively um, at that at Raymond James. I know for sure. So it, you know, some of it is some of these newer varieties are are just really starting to come online, like Tohoma. Really, this is the second year that you're seeing fields uh, with it out there. And I'm not saying it's it's the best. It was the best one when it came out, and I'm sure that it's going to stand the test of time as a really good grass. And then four or five years down the road, you're going to see other improved ones. There's already one out that's supposed to be better than uh, Tahoma, and that's a year later. So there's a lot of push there to, to bring to market uh, vegetative varieties. There's those that are established from sprig and from sod uh, that are more cold-tolerant, more drought-tolerant all those types of things is really what they're after. And so far it's hitting the mark. We'll see. I mean, it's, it's also one of those things too, where you're trading off. You're always trading off when you select these grasses and especially genus and species where, okay, I want it. I wanted to look good at this time of year. Well, understand that there's probably going to be a three month period somewhere else during the line where it looks like crap. And so you've got options there. You can do, you can overcome some of that, but, it's tough, but yeah, you would, uh, you would enjoy the, uh, I was just going to
0: say, what, what do you think is the future of Bermuda moving more into our regions? And I mean, I won't say necessarily that the transition zone has moved, but sometimes I feel like it's pushing more North at this point.
1: Yeah. That's kind of like this debate of is, is it the Bermuda grass breeders that are pushing it North? You know, pushing the, the transition zone north because we're able to use uh, these improved cold tolerant varieties, or is it just climate and where 10 years ago I might not have been successful in growing um, Bermuda grass here? Why am I now? Mm-hmm. I, I would say that you're going to continue to see it more and more. I think it's just one of those things where you have to, get, you know, start the ball rolling, and you know, it's it's the other way too, it goes the other way where. You know, we have this conversation on, on the Discord often where there's uh, it's a Georgia Tech baseball stadium is growing uh, HGT bluegrass. So you've got, you know, my, you know, me being an idiot and trying to grow Bermuda grass in central Ohio. And then you've got Chris, who's the sports turf manager down there. And there's probably people that think he's crazy mm-hmm. trying to grow bluegrass down there. But he needs that stuff to be on point really, really on point for his team and his program from, you know, say January when they start training all the way through May. Perfect grass for it. If he had Bermuda, it would be struggle. They'd be playing on overseed. It wouldn't, you know, it would just be for looks and not for show um, and playability. So yeah, I think it's going to continue to push North. I think it's just getting people comfortable with the idea that there's something else out there and getting them comfortable with, your lawn's going to, or, you know, whatever it is, your lawn, your sports field, your golf course fairway is going to go look like straw for about six, seven months out of the year. Yeah. that's just the way it is. And I think
0: the other thing to think about too, is this spreading into other areas and especially in a home lawn setting, you know, if I were to try to do something like this now and there's nothing else around here, eventually it's going to get into, move into other areas where we probably don't want it. Is there anything on those fields that you guys are worried about as far as equipment, bringing it to other areas or anything like that, or
1: there's some concerns. So the one field that, that, um, that we manage is in a, it's a soccer complex. That's got, uh, two other cool season fields, like not adjacent to, but very close by within like 50 feet. And they're all, they, they mow with the same mower, um, for both of those things and so it is something where we we try to do our best and so far i mean it's only a year in we haven't had any contamination issues but definitely something to watch out for and something that you know we're trying to plan for obviously you know current times it's not the, the best time to go out and buy a dedicated you know bermuda field mower but um i think that's kind of the the, the idea going forward is that you know, if we can isolate some of these things down, some of these variables, we can control that as best as possible. Not necessarily 100% control it, but try to keep uh, the contamination out. And you see that too uh, w- with Bermuda grasses. It's a thing um, on golf courses where they have ultra dwarfs on greens, and they might have um, you know more uh, just a regular vegetative variety. So like a you know a Celebration or a TifTuf or 419 or something like that, where they were literally edge out with a, um, either with a a landscape edger or uh, the rotary scissors, things like that to keep those two cultivars separate uh, because there's a difference and they don't want contamination and things like that. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's lots of issues just as there's issues with cool season grass. Like it's not a silver bullet, you know? And I think that's what sometimes it gets oversold coming up here to the North. Like it looks great. And it looks awesome right now, but you better be able to live with it when there's volunteer POA and nasty winter annuals that are popping up. And then you go out there in February, and it's like, this looks like
0: hell. Like yeah. What are we doing here? Well, that's that was actually one of the questions um, towards the end. Here was so from your experience, it it was what is the ideal time to spray out that rye? But then adding on that, how can I avoid weeds since I'm not able to use a pre-emergent? Which is another. Another thing, especially for the South, that they kind of need to do in order to prevent a lot of stuff from coming up uh, in a so, lot of situations, I've seen at least.
1: Well, so they'll they'll use um, basically like a fall and spring type, you know, almost like, and they'll use even split ups then. So you're trying to attack two different things, right? It's winter annuals and summer annuals. And typically up here in the North, we, we don't treat or worry uh, pre uh, pre pre-emergent wise anyway about uh, winter annual so much. I mean, unless you're really, really serious about your poa and control and things like that, but from the on on warm season. Yeah. There's definitely pre-emergence that you can use uh, both in the fall. uh, Even if you're on overseed, you got to be careful of of how you use those, but especially in the springtime, to, uh, prevent those things. Now, some of these aren't labeled for home lawn use. And so that's where it gets tricky of how do you time up those apps? But in the spring, there should be no reason why you couldn't do uh, split apps of either prodiamine and dithiopyr or, or both, you know, there's a lot of talk about, uh, managing resistance by kind of splitting up those two different, um, two different chemicals for your spring pre, even on cool season, but especially in a warm season climate.
0: So in terms of timing of what you guys are doing on that Bermuda field and getting rid of the rye, what, what are you doing with that?
1: So again, we're, we're much further North. So we're waiting for uh green up to be as full as we possibly can. And the other kind of variable in there is we're, we're also up against uh sports scheduling. So we want that rye grass out there as a, a playing surface as long as possible. And so usually like last game that would have been scheduled, but obviously didn't play this year would have been right around the 15th of May. So immediately, like right behind it, we were already 100% greened up, went out right away um, and used sulfonylurea. So we used Katana this year. Uh, it's got a very wide label besides just uh, taking out volunteer poa and other cool season grasses along with your overseeded rye. So it took out some other stuff for us too. So very versatile. There's other ones out there. And again, not here to to be the uh, the sole source of information on that topic, but uh, you know, we we wanted to wait for full green up. Now I know that there was other folks, especially with COVID this year, um, further down south that sprayed out early. You know, they wanted to get rid of that stuff. They didn't want to have any of the competition as the Bermuda grass is greening up. And here, especially with it coming out of the first winter, we were definitely a lot more cautious with that. So, if you're on established Bermuda and you know um, your climate and you know what your weather's going to do, I, you can you can do it a little bit earlier, but definitely. Um, try and plan for that green up and try to hit that window when you're actively growing. Try not to stunt that uh, emerging Bermuda grass too hard
0: Mm -hmm.
1: coming into spring. Yep.
0: Well, I think we should shift our gears just a little to the actual fall nutrients that you wanted to talk about some today as we're getting closer to that. I guess it's not far before I looked at the forecast and I saw September on there. What is it
1: like? Two weeks or something like that, two or three weeks until yeah. Labor Day. So
0: it's going it's, it's uh, going quickly.
1: It is. And so, you know, we've we've delved into and dedicated a lot of time to the folks that are renovating and overseeding and this this is still good, you know, content for sure for them to listen to because hopefully, you know, knock on wood, you've got the opportunity to next year have you know a really really nice lawn that you're maintaining and now it's just more of a maintenance item as opposed to this you know ungodly project that you've got yourself into and can't get out of until you successfully complete yes right i was
0: having that feeling again the other day where i was like oh maybe we went too far but no Uh,
1: that's the best part man that's the best part is crossing the point of no return like there is nothing like that feeling you know it's like i always say it's like uh, i like uh, craps and so it's like when the dice are in the air like you can't change anything it's on the board you don't know what's going to happen but you threw your hand and we're going to see
0: what's up here and you know very quickly so you got to embrace it ryan well you do and i think it's how you also you learn other skills because you just have to figure out whatever happens you've got to come up with that plan and maybe you're doing something else that you weren't, you haven't done before or something. So I think it's yeah, good. And
1: I, yeah. And that's the other part of like the project planning too is, uh, and if there, if people are listening to this, like they're doing that, 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 this part of it that I'm going to describe here is we, we spend a ton of time sourcing out materials, right? But a lot of times, especially now in my position where projects are, you know, the lion's share of my business and what I do in a day to day, I would say that the majority of my time is spent sourcing information and resources, you know, human and otherwise that I can call on and say, it might only be this little, you know, smidgen of the project that I need to know, you know, a spec on this little thing that I can't, figure out and but this person is an expert so i'm going to ask them so it might not be that finite with a lawn project at your house but there's definitely people that you can find you know locally in your community i think you're one of the 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 poster childs for children whatever childs (laughs) uh for let me live man let me live i i didn't say anything i know i was gooder in math so it's okay (laughs) so the uh no, the, it's for reaching out and trying to expand your network. You know, you reached out to Rick at Des Moines golf and country club and like all these other people of just like, Hey, I, I'm, I'm a turf guy, you know, and I just want to talk and, you know, you don't want to be always hitting up the same people, but I think it's a good thing to just try and build that network out of people you trust. And maybe they're not local, maybe they're far away. um, But you got to have, People you can lean on and get good advice, and you know, especially when things get tough. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, so on the on the subject of the nutrients and, th- and things like that. So for fall, for more of a management type situation on an existing lawn that you're not necessarily going to overseed or renovate or anything like that, I, I, it's really really important to start thinking about. We've talked about this a couple of times, but you know, I think you agree that fall is sort of the beginning of the growing season. You know, it's almost like the school calendar, right? It goes, you know, 2020 through 2021, you know, there's that slash in there. And I I really, truly believe that on cool season turf, that that's the case. And I don't know. I mean, what have you seen in your sort of journey from the guy that, you know, planted disturbed soil in May and then got to now, like, what have you seen as far as fall and where it fits into the, uh, the overall, schedule, if you will.
0: Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say is that I completely agree. And I found that fall is the time when I actually do most of my work as far as fertilizing and and things that I'm doing plant-wise to kind of load things up for the next season. So that's really been my focus. Um, and we can talk about how that works and all that too. But the other thing that has been difficult, I would say, in the last couple of years has been the weather being much warmer, much longer into the fall, which I think we're probably looking like we're going to experience again. Um, Looking at my forecast, even 10 days out and getting right to the beginning of September, it was showing still mid 80s and I'm not seeing really much for rain. I mean, it has not rained here any, I think two inches basically this whole summer. So what I'm dealing with now was that I was having some issue with some fungus in my bluegrass. Mm -hmm. And it's mainly because I was that stuff just needs water like crazy in my backyard because it's 90 back there and I gets like 15 hours of sunlight. So it's crazy. But so I was dealing with that. So then I let it dry out, but now I'm to that point of it's really starting dormancy. So I'm kind of just letting it be at this point, but then I'm looking at the mm-hmm. forecast and I'm looking at the calendar and saying, well, I need to get back to my fall program too sooner rather than later. But if we don't get any rain, then I've got to make a decision there, like am I going to try to bring it out of that dormancy? How long do I wait? When do you start fertilizing there's a There's a whole big thing there going on
1: yeah, it's tough It's tough because you're right that the the fall, as we used to know it, has kind of been non existent here at least in the midwest the last several years, and I think last year here it was the first week of October, and we were in the low to mid nineties, you know, for a stretch there. So I don't know that you can, that you can plan for that, but I think from a standpoint of just good sound nutrient management and, and fall fertility program that is going to make sense. There's a lot of dogmas that are out there that, that sort of cloak this whole period of fall and what you're supposed to do and everything like that. And so there's been some really, really interesting, um, research that's been done on sort of most, most all of the the um, major macronutrients N P and K. So, you know, you look at K uh, potassium and the old adage and the old uh, axiom and thinking was that, well, you know, it, it hardens off the plant and it helps uh, things over winter and, and come into spring stronger and healthier and, and all that stuff. And so what they've, what they found, and this really started about uh like 18 years ago. There was um, and these were bent grass plots, not necessarily a lawn grass, but uh bent grass plots up in uh New York State where they found that higher rates of potassium was contributing to increased snow mold pressure. So they're getting more snow mold in the plots that had more uh potassium applied. And so that was one study, you know, you couldn't really discern and shake out what might be. So, you know, people kind of caught wind of that. And some of the best uh, snow mold work comes out of the university of Wisconsin and Madison. And so those folks started kind of doing, putting two and two together and trying to see if there was any evidence there uh, in, in Wisconsin of the same thing. And sure enough, they were able to replicate that stuff. So I'm not saying that it's going to happen and it's a death knell for, the the plant, if you put out a bunch of potassium, especially if you're in a climate where maybe snow is not as big of an issue. Um, but even in colder temps, you can still without snow covers, you know, snow cover definitely exacerbates it, but it's not necessarily uh, a one plus one equals two type of scenario. Right. So you have to look at, at the whole the, the totality of, OK, well, I'm in a, in a cooler climate and this definitely could happen. When do I want to time up those apps? So really in those later, later season apps, and that's what you used to see from, uh, Scott's and some of the other, um, big box brands was their, their winterizer product was just loaded up with potassium. And, you know, it's just come to be that, that, that's not really best practice uh, for what we see at turf and performance overall. And so we needed to, um, needed to kind of go a different direction. So I think it's okay to get that stuff out earlier on in the fall. So again, you know, through for, let's just say, in a general Midwest climate, you know, from Pittsburgh clear out to where you are um, and maybe a couple hundred miles in either direction, uh, North and South, you figure, well, if I get that stuff out by mid-October, I should be fine. But anything past that, and yeah, you're, you're probably running the risk of, Maybe seeing some increased uh, snow mold pressure.
0: Yeah, and so I that's never really. I, I never really saw much snow mold in terms of any of my taller cut turf when I was doing that. But definitely, once I went to the real mode stuff, and you just the plant already is at that point of you're doing a lot of things to it stress wise. Then that's where I've seen the most issue with it in the last couple years. Now it hasn't been too bad, and I've been able to recover most of it after that. But, um, as far as the, the taller cut, I never really noticed a problem with, with that and snow mold. But I I was like you, I was actually using, if you're going to use that term, winterizer fertilizer, which I've said a couple of times in my videos, just simply marketing. So it's not like you have to look at the bag and says, Oh, it has to go out at, it's just an analysis. Like anything else, you just look at the analysis, right. but I was using more of that earlier on in the season and then going to something like a straight ammonium sulfate or, you know, something really quicker release at the end of the year. But I usually wasn't going too heavy on that either because I'd, I'd loaded a lot of nitrogen in on the front part of that fall season.
1: Yeah. And that's, we'll definitely get to the nitrogen part, but that's a good, that's a pretty good plan there. I mean, you gotta, you gotta balance those things out and understand when, it's all going out. So there's actually a, a thing, I think they're, they might be based out in Iowa, Ryan right? is um, the nutrient stewardship foundation or something like that. And they have this thing called the four R. So it's the right product, the right place, the uh, right time and the right rate. So basically it's looking at all those factors that would influence not only performance of the fertilizer, you know, for the plant, but also, For the environment, you know, so that's then that's where we kind of get into P, right? So the phosphorus gets a really bad rap, and especially here in the Great Lakes region because of how much pollution it causes in those waterways and then downstream all the way to the lakes. Here in Ohio, it was about I want to say it was 2012 or 13, something like that. There was actually one river basin that flows right out through Toledo, uh, which sits right on Lake Erie just south of Detroit. And actually like the water source is the lake and they couldn't use it for over a week in the middle of summer because there was such a huge algae bloom from all the phosphorus that was coming downstream that they, they couldn't use it. So almost, almost a, a humanitarian crisis. And so that sort of set in motion this, this whole thing that phosphorus is bad and it's being caused by a number of different things, but a lot of it got placed on, on ag and some to some extent turf as well. And so this is also an issue. Michigan has phosphorus limits. Minnesota has phosphorus limits, Chesapeake Bay, and then some of the other States up the Eastern seaboard. So Wisconsin also, I think Wisconsin was actually the first way back when, maybe about 20 years ago. So, um, so yeah, it's one of those, those nutrients too, where later, so we think about right time. Okay. So if the ground is not able to take the, you know, take the, the fertilizer in essentially, you know, if we're going to have a bunch of runoff where we've got, you know, wet waterlogged soils in the fall and we've got more rain coming or we're going to water this stuff in, where's this going to go? Is it going to go down on the soil or is it going to go wash off and end up down, you know, going down the driveway and the gutter and eventually down into storm drains and then it goes to a waterway from there. So things like that. The other contributor to that is really just starting to, you know, it's been looked at, in a number of different ways in the past and this is kind of why you heard the drumbeat for mulching um, more often start about maybe 25 or so years ago was the the phosphorus load in leaves that get raked to the street and bagged and, and put by the street is immense and there's a ton of phosphorus that ends up um, in the stormwater system because of that and so that's why there was a big push and saw uh, lawnmower manufacturers respond to this again 25 ish years ago was a was a really big push was mulch leaves into your grass and we won't have you know leaves sitting by the gutter and things like that to where it's going to end up down there your your lawn will act as a sink you know in, a, in an essence to take and use and or immobilize those um those nutrients specifically phosphorus from getting in this into the uh the water system or leaching through. So it's one of those things too, where you've got to uh, look at that and, and look at it on the front end. And then also if you're going to have, if you do have you know, trees and things like that around your yard, use that to your advantage. I mean, I think mulching sometimes gets a bad rap on the, the high end lawn care um, community because it makes your yard kind of look a little bit messy and things like that. And it does to a certain extent, but you know, I, I wouldn't be worried about it. Now, with you, you don't really have a choice. If you're in a real mowing situation, like you have no choice, you're going to have to remove those before you do it. So, I'd say, you know, the make or break is if you're mowing with a real mower, you're going to have to clear them off. If you're not, and you're using a rotary, then by all means, you should be mulching those back in, if at all
0: possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I've, and even the usually the leaves, the minimal that I have because my neighborhood's pretty new. So we don't have a lot of old trees anyway, but, mm-hmm. um, that's usually what, I, even on the real mow section, I just usually kind of take my rotary over it a few times during the fall when those are coming down, chop everything up and then keep going on the real mowing.
1: Yeah, that's a good plan. And I think they're they shouldn't be looked at as a hindrance. I mean, that's a, it's a point source for you know potential pollution. It sounds kind of crazy and dumb, but so the other thing is there too is use a soil test absolutely with phosphorus because it's not going to change, um, that much unless you add stuff, you know, add to it, you know, uh, potassium has a much greater potential to leach through, uh, and move through the system that's much more mobile in the soil. Whereas, uh, phosphorus does not have that same capability for a variety of reasons. We're not, we don't have to get into the science of that right now, but, uh, unless you're removing clippings, you know, throughout the growing season and taking that away, or if you are putting on supplemental applications, that number will only move slightly, uh, year to year. So understanding and having that soil test data to back up, uh, an application. And again, in those, uh, states where it is restricted, you actually have to have a soil test that proves that you're deficient before you apply. And the other thing there too, is I know, uh, you know, this gets a lot of, a lot of pub and, um, Matt Martin and I will go back and forth on this sometimes too, where there's the, the MLSN, you know, the minimum level of sustainable nutrients nutrients for turf. And it's really interesting. The phosphorus number is one that they're really looking closely at. So they didn't necessarily ground test how they came up with their original recommendation. And it was, it was very low. It's like 18 parts per million. Um, uh, which is, it seems, it seems really low. It looks really low, especially considering what um, some of the previous previous guidance was on soil P for turf grass. It's exceedingly low. So you have that number and what those are is more of a jumping off point for researchers to then say, okay, well, if 18 is the the minimum, let's see how low we can go. So again, um, University of Wisconsin, they've done some really, really interesting stuff with their phosphorus we're getting down in the single digits, you know, so this is a malic three extract. And if people are the, the, the folks listening are really want to dive into why and how, but um, getting down in the single digits and just barely starting to see uh, deficiency. So seeing that purpling, like real dark bluish color to the grass, almost, like I said, almost to a purple color. And it's amazing how low they're going and not seeing um, deficiencies before a certain point. And, When they make an application to correct those it snaps back like that so it's pretty interesting the the influence that those uh, soil levels have down to a very 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 uh minute level and then how quickly they can kind of snap back once you're once you're good there so Mm -hmm. do the soil test yeah and and make sure you make sure you do that well and follow like, like i said i know we've talked about your video for soil sampling i would definitely follow those recommendations because if you sample inconsistently as far as depth, those those uh, numbers can vary, very vary, you know, as far as variability widely. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, when I had so really important. I had pretty high P um, after I had soil tested this year as well. Well, last year it was pretty high, and then all of last year, pretty much, especially on the real cut stuff, I was just removing clippings and kind of managing things that way. And I wanted to see what would happen. And it did come down some in the next year after that. And I hadn't really applied anything, obviously, phosphorus either. So trying to do both of those things and see what happened with the test. but
1: Hmm. Yeah, and that's... You just have to know what's out there before you start applying that stuff. Especially for where we're at with, you know, the... Environmental impact and not only that, but more so the perception of the environmental impact that we have, you know, the, the idea that, well, I need just some, so I'm going to put a little bit more out just so I'm good, you know, try and avoid that if you can, especially in fall. And it's a, it's a really important thing. So just be judicious with those, with those rates and with uh, the timings of those applications. So again, trying to do that a little bit earlier on in the fall, even right now. Uh, to boost those levels up if you can. So what's, what's your, uh, relationship with nitrogen on existing turf bin in the fall? What's, what's sort of been your ideas, thoughts, programming, and, and has it played out the way that you anticipated?
0: So I would say that I've kind of moved to that program of, like I said, I'm using most of my my nutrient stuff, as far as nitrogen going in, in that early fall time frame. And so I would go, it just depended on what I was doing for turf because now that I have so many different cut heights and all that stuff, it throws some wrenches in how I'm doing that stuff. But as far as like, I would say, just a quote unquote normal yard, like two and a half inches, three inches of bluegrass Mm -hmm. or something, I was going to more of the, not I wouldn't say necessarily spoon feeding, but kind of like that method where I was going lower rates more often and doing, even sometimes I would go low rate like weekly in the early fall instead of just like dumping a pound in September 1 and dumping a pound because I just found that it used it better. And if I was keeping up with mowing, it just gave it kind of a consistent, really nice fall for me in that that way.
1: No, that's a that's a solid plan. I mean, that's, that's sort of the, the approach or the, the, one of the approaches that you can take. And so the, the old, old thinking and the dogma that that's out there on the late season fertilization for fall was that you go out and you can do, you know, fall, fall for it, like, you know, a pound in um, September, maybe a pound or so in October. And then, Wait until really, really late. So, like the idea was that it was going to be uh, green grass, but there was no growth. And that was supposed to be a sign that all the energy in the plant that was being used for uh, top growth was now pushing roots down in. And that's true to a certain extent. But the issue that they were seeing in these responses was that at that time, so this is usually here in Ohio and probably even out there in Iowa maybe Thanksgiving-ish week or so after something like that, you'd normally see that those kind of conditions with turf, again, green on top, but not growing. And so people would make these applications and put out, you know, a quick release. So it's going to be an ammonium sulfate at a pound or urea at a pound. And the way that this all came to be was back in the late sixties, they did a study um, at the university of Kentucky and they had really, really awesome results with that particular treatment where it was late and they bombed the heck out of it with, and, and then boom, the next spring, it looked great until like Memorial day. And that was, that just, that just took off. That was it. So some interesting work, you know, got done in these last you know 10 or so years. I hate to keep going back to the well, but, uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison man they 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 beat you up in football Ryan and <laughs> I wouldn't say they beat up it'd be a pretty it'd be a damn good game of turf programs between UMN and uh, and Wisconsin-Madison
0: but Yeah. Yep.
1: In any event they're doing some really cool stuff with nutrients uh, nutrient management in particular. And so what they looked at was why is this So, you know, so prevalent. And is there any, you know, anything to back it up? And so what they found was really interesting. And so this is a work done um, primarily by a guy named Dr. Doug Soldat up there, who's still at University of Wisconsin. You can look up stuff um, on the web. There's a lot of this information out there. There's a couple webinars on TurfNet and a couple other places where you can kind of get filled in from him directly on how this all came to be. But what they found was that, as the the fall season sort of progresses from say September one through November 30, um, they found that the, we talked about this in the heat stress um, video slash podcast was evapotranspiration, right? So the amount of water that gets taken up through the plant to replace what is being evaporated out of it. So taken up out of the soil through the roots and then put back in the plant. That rate diminishes greatly over that three month stretch from September uh, 1 to November 30. So, what they found is if you made an app uh, first of September, or I can't remember the exact dates, but it was like the 1st and the 15th, they went on like every two weeks almost, I think, to get those um, rates figured out and dialed in. But it was like an 88% decrease in uptake for those November applications as compared to September. So if I'm wasting 88% of my time, effort, and money and product, am I making a wise choice? No, I'm not. It's it's dumb. If I told you that, you know, you were going to spend a dollar, you know, on something and you just throw 88 cents of it in the trash, like you wouldn't do it. Yeah. So, but we still have people doing this and it's still a very, very prevalent thing that you hear recommended a lot. Um, And so it's really, really tough to defeat that dogma. So that's, so the idea that they had and they went back and they even looked at it too was really interesting is that they labeled um, with a radioactive isotope the these n applications to go back and look the following spring to see what they picked up and how much of that made a difference you know so what they were finding was that just because you put that laid app out about, um, you know the idea in in the past with the dogma was that well Whatever doesn't get used and doesn't get leached out will be sitting there and be ready to get used in the spring when the grass wakes up. And what they found was really no, not so much. So it gets back into what's the most effective way of doing it. Well, the most effective way is exactly what you do: is a spoon feeding approach, where you can go a little bit heavier with your N apps as that ET rate is up, right? And as that starts to wane, by say in our area or our area of the country, maybe. October 1st, you might back down a little bit on your rates. You might back down a little bit on your frequency, but it's the idea that you're just giving it a little bit at a time and not overloading the system all at once. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: And I think that that was a couple great points there because I think that's still, I hear from a lot of people that, well, I'm just going to put this, wh- this pound down at the end of the season, but it's not for now it's all for next spring and it's all just going to sit there and then like, we'll just be gangbusters in the spring and so I think there's that part, but then there's also, like you said, there's people, too, who are putting down, like, a ton of slow release or something early on, too. Like, let's say September, you're putting on something, like, all slow release, and then you're doing it again and again and again. Well, then, too, you are you kind of need the nutrients or think about, at least in my mind, I'm thinking about, I want something that's going to give it to the plant more readily at this time. And I don't really care about waiting three months when it's the dead of winter that it's not going to be able to use it.
1: Well, no doubt. And understanding end sources, which is something that I think we want to talk about here soon is, you know, so not all slow release is created equally, right? So if I have like a a methylene urea, that's a very popular slow release form that um, Scott's and some of the bigger, bigger outfits will use methylene urea we need organic or or, uh, microbial activity to break that down which means we need soil temps so soil temps are waning i put that stuff out it can be a good thing and a bad thing so it's a it's a good thing in the sense that um it's out there and it's nothing's really going to happen to it over winter but coming in the next spring if i get a quick warm-up and things really sit and get going, I have zero control over that end at that
0: point. Matt was talking yeah. about that on his radio show yesterday because he said that used to be his exact strategy to beat everyone in terms of the <laughs> spring because he's like, I would load that thing up, and then the next year, all these companies would be like, "How does this grass like that? You have like two days of 70, and he's like, that thing, I didn't care if it grew six inches in one day. I was like blazing yeah. green.
1: No, that's, and that's something that you can do. Now, if you've got like a poly coat, which is relying on like osmotic pressure between, you know, you got a gradient inside the particle, inside the pearl and outside, that's just using water to pull it across. So you could potentially leach some of that stuff out and not have anything to show for it come spring. So I just think, you know, you book in those things and you start a new stack coming into spring. You try to do that. So you, you can use like the, the easy button method if you don't want to go through or you don't have the time, wherewithal, whatever, to commit to every two or three weeks putting out applications. Um, in a spoon feeding sense, is use that slow release and do it in a time, say, between September 15th and October 15th and really just try to stick with like half a pound of N per thousand. You know, it's not going to be... Um, The most beneficial or as beneficial as, say, the spoon feeding approach where you're you're taking that whole three months and slicing it up into uh, 10 to 21 day increments. But it'll do. And I've seen some people even and I've done this myself in some situations where you kind of take a hybrid of those two where, okay, hey, we'll do that that slow release that app early, like September 15th, like the very front end of that window and then try to come in at the you know, third or fourth week of October and just bump it along a little bit, as long as that weather allows us to mm-hmm. um, and paying attention to those ET rates, paying attention to how dry it gets. And especially if it gets, uh, as it gets wetter, you know, when the day lengths shorten up and all those things are working against you, that's when you got to back down.
0: So sure. in terms of your strategy, in the case that we've had a couple of years like we've had now, where it's not getting cooler when it should, and it's not raining when it should, what happens in terms of like your plan? I, I can't remember exactly what I did last year, but I mean, I was in the same boat. I happened to be watching... a a little one of my videos last night to catch some information. Sometimes I forget things and then I go back and I'm like, what did I say in that video? And I go...
1: You're getting old, Ryan. I am. You're getting old. So I was watching... 35 this year and it's all gone. It's It's all out of your head now.
0: Yeah, but I was watching and it it was uh, like September 25th last year or something and I was like, it's like 88 right now and humid and this is terrible. But so what would be your plan then if we don't get that cooler weather and there's no moisture you know, coming along early on and you have to sort of delay things, but then you know what happens. We winter comes when it comes, it doesn't delay two months of back. So.
1: Right. And that's, that's the tricky part. So if I was in an irrigated situation, so, and and this is sort of like the, 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 I don't have as much time in September as I do in late October. So that's where I'm, I'm cool with, Let's do a half pound of slow release, like 50% or less, 30 to 50% slow release product. Throw that out there to half a pound and then come back in five weeks, maybe six weeks. And now I'm just going to ride that wave of the weather, right? Because, oh my gosh, you know, it was a week ago, it was 88 degrees. And now it's, you know, it's comfortable at 65 and it looks like it's going to be that way for a while. So I'm going to bump this along with, you know, a quarter pound or so here, and then wait and see what the forecast is. I'm in control at that point. I'm not, again, carpet bombed with a bunch of stuff and I don't know what's going to happen. So that's, that's a sort of a, that balanced approach. If you're unirrigated, then the, the same rules apply except for you got to time it up with rain, you know? So if you're going to do uh, spoon feeding, you're timing up with rain to come right after uh, and be imminent when you're going to do it. Or if you do that that hybrid approach or the total easy button approach again before rain. So if you have a really, really dry fall...
0: How do we time things it's, with it's rain, tough. Ryan? Because I, I don't know how this works because I see 80% on the <laughs> forecast and it never happens.
1: <laughs> you, uh, I don't know. Some of it, there's been... I, I would say that's happened more frequently in the last couple of years here. And again, it's just chance and probability, whatever. But there's been more times where in any other like stretch in my career where I can think of where it's been like, Oh yeah, we're going to get it. We're going to go through that for today. And then it's like, Holy crap. We missed that rain and that stuff's going to sit up there for like eight days and bake. And you're just like, Oh yeah. You know, by day five or so, it's like out of your mind enough that it's only probably two or three times a day that it comes back and it's like, Oh God, that fruit's still sitting up there. Oh geez. Yeah. You know, so the anxiety and the waves of it kind of become a little bit less and less. But there's been other times, too, where, yeah, it, it's, I don't know, we all, you know, it's not everybody has uh, the advantages uh, that you and I do where we're sitting at the ready or can be at any moment. So you kind of sometimes have to take that leap of faith or uh, whether it's to pull the trigger or to, eh, you know what, I'm going to hold off. So,
0: yeah, well, and luckily... Usually- for other people i guess i would say i don't know if it's lucky but you know for you you're showing your work to however many people like show up on a football game on a friday night and i'm showing my work to however many thousands of people on youtube who are going to come and tell me i'm terrible if it's not looking good so
1: hey ryan can i tell you something yeah you're terrible
0: thank you (laughs) But so, you know, it's, in that yeah, case, there, there's a lot of times where I do think to myself, uh, yeah, I mean, if I was just a regular homeowner, I would still care, yeah. but I would be like, if I miss this by a week and I do something to where I can't get it down, then it doesn't maybe matter as much to some other people. But
1: Yeah, no, I get it. And that's that's probably the other part of it too. But um, yeah, you just, you do your best and, and try to, you're not going to kill anything um, unless you're doing... Stupid high rates event or, or or something like that. So it should be fine. But yeah. Yeah, it was uh it was a YouTube user. I think it was lawn dog sixty nine sixty-nine was the guy who paid me twenty bucks to say that you suck.
0: Okay. So I'll have we to, still need to do
1: Ryan we need to find we still need to do Ryan or uh mean tweets or mean comments. Yeah. We'll have to do that in our next episode.
0: Well, see, I did that one time. I posted something on Instagram and I was like, you know, I don't think I share these enough. And a bunch of people wrote to me and they're like don't share those. It's just going to bring a whole bunch of other terrible people around. And I was like, eh, I don't know about yeah. that, but I still think it would be funny. It Th- would be. There are some good not. ones. But I have to good. have you read them. So,
1: Oh, I, I, I can read them. And then I want to see your reaction. That would be, that would be delightful. Okay. We'll so do that. We'll do that. I, I I say this all in jest, please. If, if anybody's listening and think I'm speaking this seriously, is we, we both are, are very humble people and we're both, we try to be good at what we do, but, we fail constantly, and that's because we keep trying. So, yeah, uh, it's always really nice to uh, be brought down a peg or two by your friends rather than some d bag on on a YouTube comment, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> well, so I... yeah, so the yeah the end part that's that's a good. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I was just gonna say the end part that's a good encapsulation of strategies and tactics on on how to do it. And be interested to see some of the questions that come through on that subject for sure.
0: Yeah, I think. Uh... So you can find us here at ryanorlawncare.com slash podcast. And if you want to, uh, we need to come up with an email address, I think, just for the show. But for now, you can find us on Twitter or email us if you'd like some questions there. And then I think next week we can probably get to a few more of those. I didn't grab anything today. Um, Right before we started the show, I asked Ryan, I was like, do you have a plan for today? Because I don't have one. So we're going to find out how this goes.
1: Oh, Hey, you know me, I can, I can come up with an agenda for turf any day of the week. You just let me know what you want to talk about and we'll talk about it.
0: But now I think we're at an hour and 30 minutes. So we, See, we successfully did it.
1: We're up against it. We're both, we're both windbags, but it was, uh, especially me, but <laughs> no, it was good. It was good to talk. And like I said, I think the, the nutrient management piece, something crucial for people to start thinking about here. This falls the beginning. So, yep. but no, thanks again for the time. And, uh, Really looking forward to next week when uh, we have more exciting
0: stuff to talk about. Exactly. All right. Well, that's it for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Ryan, for chatting with me again. And we'll be back next week. See you.